Good morning. It's good to have you here to worship with us this morning. Before I, uh, we look at our sermon, I just wanted to share something with the church family. Uh, I read this a number of years ago by John Piper. It was uh, very challenging. I think it's appropriate and timely for us as a church family as Pastor Chris prayed. You know, there's a number of situations right now in our church family that have been very difficult for a number of families. Um, and about a de- decade ago, Piper wrote a book uh, through a sermon series through the book of Ruth, and the book was called Sweet and Bitter Providence, and it was a very good book, very challenging. I wanted to read just a few sections from that book, because maybe it'll be a, uh, an encouragement to many that are here. Um, there are some in our church family that are not here because of physical issues, so maybe they're watching online, but I think for all of us, it'll be an encouragement, again, looking at what God's doing in our life and recognizing that there's probably more that he's doing that we quite, can't quite see. So hope this will be encouragement to you. This is what he writes. Life is a winding and troubled road. Switchback after switchback. And the point of biblical stories is to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads, that God is for us in all the strange turns. The life of the godly is not a straight line to glory. It's more like a dark and seemingly unknown trail through the mountains. There are rock slides and slippery curves and hairpin turns that make you go backward in order to go forward. But along this hazardous, twisted road that doesn't let you see very far ahead and may even feel like you've been led to the edge of a cliff, God gives us encouragement and hope that all the perplexing turns in our lives are going somewhere good. Often when you think that God is farthest from us or has even turned against us, the truth is he is laying a foundation for greater happiness in our lives. God is plotting for our joy. He is plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. And yet the life of the godly is not a straight line to glory but they do get there. God sees to it. The best is yet to come. That's the unshakable truth about the life of the woman and the man who follow Christ in obedience that flows from faith. I say it to the young who are strong and hopeful, and I say it to the old from whom the outer nature is quickly wasting away. The best is yet to come. God is at work in the darkest times for our good and for Christ's glory. And he will see to it that the glory of his son will fill the earth and in him we will find everlasting joy. That pledge God has made to his people is unbreakable. Would you join me as I pray? Father, I think of many families in our church family even now who are struggling mightily. Some with the loss of spouses who have been with them for decades, some with the loss of parents, some with the loss of dreams and hopes of good health, some with the loss of a baby. And God, we mourn with them and we desire to walk with them. We recognize this morning 
your providence has been heavy. But we know from your word that you are with your people. Even in the midst of unceasing sorrow and pain, you are there. And so we ask, God, this morning that you would give grace to those. Give grace and peace to those who have lost much. Give hope and joy for those who are fearful, who are uncertain of the future and what it looks like. May you fill them with hope from your word. Give patience to them as they wait on you. And God, we ask as a church family that we would be able to minister to them. Help us not to forget one another as we leave this place on Sundays, but help us to be involved in each other's lives, to encourage one another, to pray for one another, to spend time with one another, and to walk with one another until we reach home. We thank you for this time this morning that we can gather and worship you. And we thank you that you hear our prayers. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are continuing a series that we left off a number of weeks ago through the book of Romans. So if you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 1. And as you're turning there, I was uh, perusing through a number of books this week, and one in which was uh, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism by Mark Dever. And at the beginning of one of the chapters, he shares an account of an interesting news story that was published incorrectly. And it's pretty great, so I wanted to share it. Just because it's news, and we're going to get there of Romans 1, is really news. The gospel is, is good news. But here's, here's what he writes. According to this account, a little over 100 years ago, the editor of an English newspaper opened a copy of his paper after it was already for sale and printed out for people to get, only to find the most embarrassing and unintentional typographical conflation of two stories combined together. One about a patent pig-killing and sausage-making machine, and the other about a gathering honor to a local pastor, the Reverend Dr. Mudge, at which he was presented with a gold-headed cane. So a portion of it read as follows. Several of Reverend Dr. Mudge's friends called upon him yesterday, and after conversation, the unsuspecting pig was seized by the hind leg and slid along a beam until he reached the hot water tank. Thereupon, he came forward and said that there were times when the feelings overpowered one, and for that reason, he would not attempt to do more than thank those around him for the manner in which such a huge animal was cut into fragments was simply astonishing. The doctor concluded his remarks when the machine seized him, and in less time than it takes to write it, the pig was cut into fragments and worked up into delicious sausage. The occasion will be long remembered by the doctor's friends as one of the most delightful of their lives. The pieces can be procured for 10 pence a pound, and we are sure that those who have sat so long under his ministry will rejoice that they have been treated so handsomely. How we communicate the news matters. Right? The gospel is about news. The gospel literally means good news. It's the best news in the world. And we should have confidence in this news. This news is far more important than this story, Dr. Mudge and the sausage machine. But, it, but very often, every bit, sometimes it's scrambled and, and confusing when people seek to share it with no connection to the Bible. And what happens is the gospel becomes diluted and disheveled and sometimes placed aside for a much malnourished message. And when that happens, the real message of the scriptures 
the, the power is then lost and people are confused. And so I'm hoping as we spend the remaining time this morning in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, we will see the gospel clearly and have the confidence to share it accurately for God's glory. If you're new with us this morning, we've been slowly making our way through just chapter one of Romans in this series, just this chapter, and this is a monumental book for the Christian walk. This book shows us our way to God. It teaches us about ourselves and about the remedy for sin that controls our lives. This book shows Christ in the power of the gospel, and this morning we're going to look at just these two verses, and it's really the thesis of the book of Romans. It's the gospel of God, Romans 1, 16, and 17. So as my custom here and, and those that, that fill the pulpit, I'm going to share a main idea. And so if you're new to our church, the main idea is really the main thrust, or at least it should be for that of the sermon. So if I'm preaching correctly an expositional sermon, my main idea should be the main idea of the text as well, Okay. So if you write anything down, write this down. Keep it and think through it this week. It's, it's a short sentence, so everyone can write it down. So if you're not used to writing that down, I'm just going to tell you, you really need to write this down, okay? You got a smartphone or you got a piece of paper, write down this one sentence, okay? We can have unflinching confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ because that gospel is powered by the God of the universe, yeah, I'm looking to see if you wrote it down. Because <laughs> this will fuel your thoughts this week, I think, if you come back and meditate on what we talk about. We can have unflinching confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ because that gospel is powered by the God of the universe. And we'll see this main idea in three points as we walk through these two verses. We can have confidence because the gospel has massive power. We can have confidence the gospel... The gospel offers a remarkable gift, and we can have confidence because the gospel is open to everyone. So, that is the main idea and the outline, and I'm going to read Romans 1, verses 1 through 17. So, if you have your Bibles open, if you don't have one, there should be one in the pew. Romans 1, 1 through 17. Follow with me as I read. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit and the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel." 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We can have confidence because the gospel has massive power. Paul begins right there in verse 16 showcasing the incredible power of the gospel by writing that. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. See, right off the bat, Paul uses this conjunction for. You see it there, even if you read through the rest of the chapter, and Lord willing, we'll see this in the next few weeks. It's a connecting statement. But that word links this statement in verse 16 of no shame to the verse that I just read in verse 15. Romans 15, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome. For, because I'm not ashamed of this gospel. Paul is eager to preach at Rome because he's not ashamed of the gospel, and he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation, and the gospel is God's power for salvation because it conveys the righteousness of God to all who believe. The gospel is God's instrument not only to make us Christian in the first place, but also to keep us Christian to the very end. That's another reason why Paul is eager to preach the gospel to those Christians in Rome, to encourage them again of where their hope lies. Paul, so Paul's eagerness to come to Rome and preach there fuels his unashamed posture of preaching the good news. If you remember back in your, your history and what we said a, a number of weeks ago, Rome was the seat of all power in the Greco-Roman culture in Paul's world. And most people derived their power from what they could Uh, what they had or what they could acquire through their social connections and with people who are higher up in their social and political and economic statuses. It kind of resembles Washington, D.C. in some ways today with all the power and influence that it wields. And so Paul's message of salvation through faith would sound foolish to people who, who, who want power by their own way. By, by having connections with people and, and utilizing that. It would sound foolish to them that you would rely upon God to give you this. Is it true that people think the gospel is foolish today? If you say no, you probably haven't talked to enough people. They, you bet they do. They, they think that the gospel is, is somewhat shameful. You know, it doesn't, doesn't fit into their worldview. And let me give you a few reasons why they would, they would say it's, it's, it's foolish. We say that there's one triune God, not many gods or some impersonal force. And this God that we worship created the universe by the word of his mouth. We also believe that all humans have wicked hearts and are radically sinful. We believe that the most important weekend in all history is the weekend that Jesus died and rose again. We believe that Jesus actually paid for our sins on the cross, not just displayed for us an example that we can somehow emulate. No, he, he died for us. And we believe that, that God raised him from the dead, for real. He was dead and God brought him back. We also believe that Jesus is Lord over everything in creation. He's Lord over you, he's Lord over me, he's Lord over everyone and everything. He is Lord. We believe that Jesus is the only way for salvation. There are not many paths to God, but only one way through Jesus Christ. And we believe that being regenerated is a real experience, 
and the Holy Spirit really does live inside Christians today. We believe the church is made up of new creations, different people from different backgrounds, but are now family, not just now on earth, but forever. We believe that Jesus is coming back to earth again for his church, and everyone will bow and confess that he is Lord. Whether you're a Jew or a Muslim or a Hindu or an atheist or a Baptist, everyone will confess and bow the knee to Jesus. And we believe that there is a final judgment for everyone. And Jesus will separate the sheep from the goats. One will live with him forever and the other will be separated from him forever. We believe this. We teach this and we preach this. And all these statements are true based upon the scriptures. But many in the world think that's silliness. Many in the world think that it's, it's, it's uh, foolish to believe his declarations. And they say you, you should be embarrassed by those beliefs. There's, there's no such thing as absolute truth. We believe the truth. And perhaps that's what most of the Romans would have said and why Paul's writing this. And so Paul begins by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for salvation. And for anyone of you who have sat under preaching for some time, you know that the Greek word for power means what? Anyone know? Dynamite. Oh, you don't know. All right, now you can log that away. The Greek word for power here is the word we get for dynamite or dynamic. It's, it's the, and so we can read it, the, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the dynamite of God for salvation. It, it destroys the bond of Satan on the soul. It crumbles the chains that hold us in hell. The gospel is the dynamite that we need. And so we know that power can be translated dynamite, but I also realized this week through study that it can be translated as the word prescription in some translations. So another reading of the verse could be this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the prescription of God for salvation. Now, the good doctor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, who preached for many years in England, has a great illustration that I've borrowed and adjusted here. I want to share this. Suppose you're sick, and you go to the doctor to treat you, and you find out that there is a medicine and that can cure your illness. And he writes out the prescription, and he gives it to you. Now, the fact that you hold that prescription in your hand isn't the cure, right? There isn't power in the paper, right? Well, in one sense, it's right, but in another sense, it's wrong. There is great power in that paper through the means of that prescription. You can secure the cure for your illness, but you have to take your prescription to the pharmacy and have it filled, and then you take the medicine, and the power is displayed. The relationship between the work of the Lord Jesus Christ and the application of the work by the Holy Spirit and the gospel itself, the word preached, is something like that illustration. And in this connection, the gospel, the word, the prescription. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this prescription I'm carrying around. I know what it can do for your life. The gospel is not simply about the power of God, though it is. It's not simply that it's prescription of God either, but it actually contains the power of God. In that sense, that God actualizes his saving work through the gospel. The gospel is not uh, good advice for you to do and what you must do now. It's primarily good news about what's already been done, something that's already happened. You, You don't create the prescription. You don't do anything, but you take the prescription. You take the medicine. You ingest it, and you receive it. And friends, other religions... 
In fact, all other religions say something like this. If you really want to meet God, if you really want to know him, you need to do this. You need to live this way. You need to think this way and then display it in your life to keep it. And then you might be saved. And friends, that's advice. Just so you know, that's, that's work really, pure and simple. And that's, and that's really what we are used to or accustomed to in life, Right? You have to work to earn the things that you have. It's pretty normal for our way of life. Nothing is really free, right, in life. People always think there's some kind of catch. They believe that you have to do something to earn it and and to get it. And if you've believed that in the past, I'm happy you're here because you'll see that Christianity is different. The message of the gospel is what God has done and will do for us. And he says it's power. It doesn't bring the power or even has the power, but it's actually power. The gospel message is actually the power of God. It changes people. It actually brings people who were once dead in their sins back to life. The gospel is what saves, not us. And what does this power result in? Paul says it's for salvation here in our verses. The gospel's power is seen its ability to, to completely change minds and hearts and life and our understanding of everything that happens on earth. It, it is power because it does what no other power on earth can do. It actually saves us. It reconciles us with God and gives us a place in his kingdom. Salvation delivers us from the guilt, power, and pollution of sin. And I'll take this information of what we know and then go back to verse 14 of what Paul says. We looked at that a few weeks ago, Romans 1.14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to the foolish. Paul says, I'm, I'm under obligation. I'm, I'm in debt to these people. He's saying, I, I was once ill myself, and I know the cure now. And, and I have the prescription that can bring life. And why would he keep it to himself? I mean, why would he hoard it to himself? It is so good, it, it, it brought me life, so I'm gonna just keep it for myself. That's not what Paul does. No, Paul says, I'm in debt to them. I'm gonna go, and, and how can I allow these people to die when I have the cure? I have the answer. How can I watch them muddle through life and struggle and think that they can work or earn their way to heaven. How can I do this when I have the answer here in the scriptures? He says, I'm in debt. And he knows where the help can be found. And he has to do it. Paul has to share the gospel. He has to share what the gospel has done in his life for others that he comes in contact with. And so I ask, friends, (coughs) excuse me, What about you? First, do you know the cure for this life? You may have just come, and and friends, just so you know, you're always welcome here. We meet every Sunday at 1030. You are always welcome to join us. And you may have stumbled in here, but do you know the cure for life? Are you looking for answers? Have you received the prescription that can bring abundant life for all eternity? You know, this is why we're here each week. I love preaching the gospel every week. It, it is a balm to my own soul, and I pray it's a balm to yours because we revel in what God has done, what he's accomplished. 
to be reminded of the truth and to give out that truth to others. So have you accepted that prescription for your life, namely Jesus Christ? So your, your greatest issue in life, and I know we, we, you come in and you're thinking through all sorts of different things of this last week and what this next week looks like, and you're thinking through all the different troubles possibly you have, but your greatest issue isn't your job. It isn't your, your career. It isn't your marriage. It isn't your kids, although they might be driving you nuts. That's not your greatest issue, friend. Your greatest issue is sin. Your sin against the holy God. And so if you come here this morning and you're not a Christian, you've never made a decision to follow him, God has given an answer through the good news of what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross. Why we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We all deserve death for our rebellion. We're all rebels. And you know deep down, you know deep down inside yourself, you know it's true. We've all rebelled against him. But Christ came and lived and died and rose again for our salvation. And these two verses rehearse that truth and how we can have salvation. So friend, have you submitted your life to Jesus Christ? Have you turned from trusting in yourself and turned to Christ today and trust in him? See, it is possible, this is mind-blowing, friends, this is possible for us as men and women to stand sinless before God. I mean, if you know yourself well enough, that is mind-blowing. In Christ, we stand sinless before God. And it is possible, friend, to walk out of this service this morning knowing without any doubts that you have eternal life. It's possible to stop trying to earn your way to stop the frustration of working for heaven and to believe solely on Jesus Christ. And we would love to talk to you. I'm sure there's people in your row that would love to talk to you after the service. So if you have questions, come find me or just ask someone you came with. Put them on the spot. Ask them, are you a Christian? Can you help me understand what this means to follow Jesus? And we'd love to talk to you more. And we want you to have confidence in the gospel. But I recognize that sometimes as Christians, we can lose confidence in the gospel. And we've lost confidence in the gospel when we water it down, when we take away the power. See, friends, if you adjust the good news, you lose the good news. The gospel cannot be domesticated. The gospel is a message, and it's a bloody message of a Savior who was murdered on a tree and who was put in a tomb and it was guarded, thinking that they had him. But on the third day he rose again, and he conquered death. And the good news is that we have all turned against God, and we needed a rescue, and God has given Christ for us. But we can lose this confidence in the gospel when we're faced with real-life situations with people usually closest to you, family and friends who have not submitted to Christ. We're going to talk about this more in the next few weeks because the verses kind of tend this way, but we've seen clearly in the last five to ten years the advancement of the sexual revolution in our culture with everything of transgender to homosexuality and the discussions that fill our news cycles and social media. It's no wonder that many more people are struggling to see what the Bible teaches about their bodies and why they're created and why they're here. And for them, it's hard to do anything wrong when self-expression is the supreme good. 
And that seems to be the mantra now in our world. And self-expression seems to be the greatest good that this world is going for. But that's not what the Bible teaches. And we can lose confidence in the gospel when we worry about offending those closest to us who have been led astray, who are struggling with these issues. And we need to hold to the power of the gospel. We can also lose confidence in the gospel in other ways. Take, for instance, I, I met a number of years ago a young man who called me um, that I had just little contact with. He wasn't in a part of our church, but he called me desperate for answers. And, and the issue in his life was dating a girl and really began to get to know her, liked her quite a bit. Uh, they were building a relationship and even both thinking that this was going somewhere. But then along the way, she found out he was a Christian, that he actually attended church. And her, her response was an ultimatum. I don't believe this. In fact, I had bad experiences. So you either ditch church, ditch God, or I'm gone. And he called me for answers. You can only imagine what I said, right? I actually said, well, it's God's will that you're not to be with this woman. And he was confused by that. I said, well, if you're following Christ and she's not, then that's God's will. But he didn't listen. He ultimately stopped attending his church and in essence, he was ashamed of the gospel. He was ashamed of the power of the gospel. And he wouldn't let that affect his relationship. But shame doesn't just happen to young kids who are in love. It happens to those that work in a culture of business lunches. And, and you're fearful of sharing too much of your life, your devotion to the Lord, because they might not respect you enough. Or they might think down upon you. Or you might be able to not move up the, the corporate ladder as quick as you Want. So you're cryptic and, and you're quiet and you're hoping that they don't ask you why you can't join the Sunday uh, business forecasting meeting because you go to church. And so you, you, you kind of hold it back in. You're fearful of being rejected and, and, and so you hold back the news that you're actually Christian, that you go to church. Or when opportunities come to, to talk about your life, to talk about following Jesus, and, and you share it in a way that it's almost shameful, like, well, it, it's good for me, but you do you. You, you. you do what's best for you. This was what's best for me. But friends, we know from the gospel, what's the best thing? See, the gospel is offensive. We have to understand this. The gospel is telling someone the way you're going is wrong. In fact, it is going to lead you to hell. And this is the way you should go. And sometimes we struggle with this. <clears throat> and we lose confidence in the gospel. And we forget that there's power in the gospel to change lives. And the fear of shame will make us less than eager to preach the gospel, even if we know we ought to do it. So the gospel is offensive. It goes against the thoughts of self-expression. And it pushes against the cultural norms of our day. And our job as Christians is to, is to graciously and lovingly and winsomely share the gospel. To share the good news of the hope that we have. So, first point. We can have confidence because the gospel has massive power. This is my longest point if you're taking notes. They gradually get shorter as we go through here. So let's not forget that the gospel has massive power. It's in, encouraged by that this morning. Secondly, the gospel offers a stunning gift. He says, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It's truly a stunning gift if you think about it. In the gospel, we get the righteousness of God. 
When, when God justifies a sinner, God gives that person a new legal standing before him. His or her righteousness is from God. And the business of the gospel is to make us righteous in the sight of God, to make us acceptable with God, to enable us to stand in the presence of God. But unless, I'm sorry, I lost my point. You might be here this morning and, and maybe life has gone pretty well for you. In some ways, you've, you've learned what it means to, to live the Christian life and, and some good changes in how you relate to others and how you think and how you talk. But unless you have something that will allow you to stand before God on that final day, you will not make it. Your legal standing has to change. Your good behavior won't be good enough on that final day. You need righteousness. You need Christ's righteousness to stand before him on that day. And how has our legal standing changed in our lives? How, how can men and women be right with God? How does this happen? We must acknowledge that when we come into this planet, we are not right with God. We're all born sinners. We're all rebels to his word and his law. Every single one of us is born here, opposed to God, opposed to his word and his way. But if we're to make it on that final day, how are we to be made right with God? That is what is revealed in the gospel. Look again at verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. What is revealed in the gospel, he says, is is God's way of solving our greatest problem. And God's way of solving it is that God himself provides us with his very righteousness that he demands. That's the good news. He doesn't demand righteousness and say, good luck. He doesn't do that. He provides for us. Now, the righteousness of God could mean here his character. He is perfectly holy and just and good. He is without any blame or wrongdoing. But that isn't what Paul is stating here. He's speaking of the righteousness from God. And this is an amazing truth claim that, as Paul says, it's revealed to us, meaning no one would ever find it out on their own, that God would have to show us through his word. And that is a right standing with God offered to us through his son. We get Christ's righteousness. Now, what does righteousness mean? Well, we'll think through what it means to be right with someone. What does it mean to be right with the IRS? You've all paid up, right? You're right with them. Or, or what does it mean to be right with the court system? It means whatever has happened, you're, you, you've worked through the system and you're now right with them. To, to be right means it's a, a positional word. It means to have a right standing, have no debts or liabilities. It, it means you don't owe people, other, others, you don't owe them anything. You are acceptable to that organization. You're acceptable to that person. It, it means that that other party has nothing against you. And so to have the righteousness with God would mean that we are now right with God. God has nothing against us now because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross for us. One author said, the righteousness of God is a righteousness originating in God, prepared by God, and revealed in the gospel and therefore offered to us. In other words, this righteousness is an alien righteousness. And I don't mean alien like E.T. I mean it's, it's, it comes from another outside from us. It's a righteousness from heaven. We could never earn this righteousness on our own. No, we needed his righteousness. And because of this, we're justified. We're made right in God's sight. 
To be justified does not mean to be made righteous necessarily, but it means to be declared righteous. And what God does for us in justification is similar to what the judge does in a court of law. He does not change the defendant by turning them into a new person, but rather he declares the defendant innocent of the charges brought against them. Our greatest problem in this world isn't a horizontal problem, it's a vertical problem. You may have issues with one another here in life, and those are problems that you want to work through, I understand that. But friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, your greatest issue is a a vertical problem. (coughs) And justification is the answer to that problem. Justification removes the barrier between God and man. And we're declared innocent before God now. Well, look again here at verse 17, because Paul will will quote Habakkuk there at the end of the verse. (coughs) I'm sorry for the coughing. I'm still getting over my cold. There at the end, he says that, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And he's quoting Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And Paul is showing that the gospel is being revealed is consistent with the Old Testament revelation. This was always the plan, is what he's saying. God is always saved by faith, and we'll see that more clearly as, we, as you read through Romans chapter 3 and chapter 4. The gospel revealed provides the answer to Habakkuk's question as to how can God remain just and at the same time keep his promise. Here's a useful analogy borrowed from Augustine. And he says this, the Old Testament is like a fully furnished but darkened room. All the furniture of God's rescue is present, but it's only perceived dimly and in a shadow. And the gospel turns the light on so that we can say, ah, now I see what God has been doing and how he's been doing it. So when Paul says that the gospel is being revealed, a present continuous tense, it means it's an ongoing activity. Everywhere the gospel is preached, friends, a light is turned on to show God's saving work. It has massive power. So that's why we're called to continue to preach the gospel. You ever been a part of that when you've, you've shared the gospel with someone and you can just see the light go on? You just see it beam up and they, and they understand things that they've never understood before. But, there is a hazard here. We, we can lose confidence in the gospel because we refuse to share it. We just stop sharing the gift. Paul says at the beginning of our passage, I'm not ashamed of the gospel message. Friend, are you ashamed of the gospel message? If we are ashamed of the gospel message and neglect to share it, then perhaps we've never been gripped by the grace and power of that gospel. Can a man ever be ashamed of the thing which saved his life? Can we ever grow tired of sharing the hope that we have? If you've really been saved by the power and grace of the gospel, you can't be ashamed of it. In fact, you, would, you glory in it when it's preached. You're happy to hear the gospel preached. You're not sitting there thinking, oh, here goes Jeff again. You know, this gets old, Jeff, every week. Well, you glory in that because you recognize that's what saved you. And you're now new because of what Christ has done for you. See, Paul was a man whose life had been turned upside down by the Lord Jesus Christ. He was, he was headed for, for condemnation and Christ reached out and laid hold of him. And, and there was no way now for Paul to be disloyal to his Lord. There was no way that he was going to be ashamed of this gospel. 
And, and if you and I are ashamed today, perhaps it's because we've never tasted of the grace and power of the gospel. See, friends, Christians share the gospel. That's what Christians do. We share the gospel, we share the hope because it's, it's been so overwhelming to us in our lives. We want others in on this. It's the best news in the world, so we want others to hear it and to see it lived out in our lives and lived out in their lives. So we can have confidence because the gospel has massive power, point one, and it offers a stunning gift. And third, we can have confidence because the gospel is open to everyone. It says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He says the gospel comes to the Jew first because God entrusted Israel with his word first. Paul is not here ranking Israel and Jews as better than the the Gentiles. He isn't simply doing that. He's, He's simply stating a historical fact. He doesn't say to the Jew especially, he doesn't say to the Jews because they're more important. He is simply stating the chronological order, that is to say a time relationship. It went to the Jews first and now to the Gentiles. And so to the Jew first in the sense of a sheer matter of history because the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We all come that same way. And God's plan was to, was to go to the Jews first, then to the Gentiles. And the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul says, is, is the most universal invitation of the world. But it's an invitation, and it needs to be accepted. I read a story, I think in the last month, and I couldn't find it again to reference it, but I recall most of it, where it was a prisoner who was on death row, and there was a hustle from the family and the lawyers to to work through of trying to get him a pardon. And a lot of work had been done. It was coming up to that final hours, and and word got finally to the governor's desk, and and he looks at the case, and in that case, he, he had... Uh, seeing the, the evidence and that he would to be pardoned and he agreed to pardon him. And, and, and so he agrees to it. But this man knew himself and he knew all of the other evil he had done in his life and he was convinced that he deserved what he was getting. And so the lawyer comes and tells him that he's been pardoned and he's going to be released. But the prisoner refused. He had an invitation to be released from his bondage but he had to sign the papers and he refused. He refused the invitation. The invitation was there, and he said no. See, the invitation must be accepted. You must come to the source of living water if you want it. The awesome gift is not found with any other God. It's only available through Jesus Christ. And the invitation is there, friends, to turn from your sins and to turn to Jesus Christ. Well, as Christians, we sometimes lose confidence in the gospel because we, we don't share it with everyone. We have certain people that we have more comfortable uh, willingness to share the gospel with. But as we learn here, the gospel is universally available. The gospel is for everyone, for any people group, whether they're Canadian or Japanese or European or African. It's for any stage of life. It's for the rich people. It's for the poor people. It's for happy people. It's for sad people. The gospel is offered to anyone. And so Christian, do we think or speak or act or pray as though the gospel is for the world equally? 
Do we really believe the gospel is for everyone? Or is there anyone that you're hesitant, anyone in your life, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, any other ethnic group that you are hesitant to talk to? Any other religious people that you don't want to go to? Is there ethnic groups where you're more reticent to talk about their need for Jesus Christ? You know, this is a good question for us to answer, but you have to answer it. And I pray you would think deeply about this. Perhaps this would be a good question to have and discuss over lunch today. What is the hesitation for me to share the gospel with certain people? You see that Romans 1, 16 and 17 is a clear explanation of the gospel. As I said earlier, Paul is eager to preach at Rome because he's not ashamed of the gospel, and he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power for salvation, and the gospel is God's power for salvation because it conveys the righteousness of God to all who believe. See, the gospel is God's instrument not only to make us Christians in the first place, but to keep us Christians to the very end. And so as we kind of end our time in Romans 1, we're going to move our time into the Lord's Supper. As we, as our custom here, the first Sunday of every month, we celebrate the Lord's Supper as a church family. As you look in the scriptures, Christ fulfilled the word of God. He fulfilled the law of God by going to the cross and taking the penalty we deserve for our law breaking. And there are two ways to fulfill the law. You either keep it or you pay the penalty for breaking it. Either way, the law is satisfied. And Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life and fulfilled the law once. Then he went to the cross and he died and he paid the penalty and fulfilled the law again. He, he took the curse of our law breaking des- that, that it deserves so that we could get the blessing that his law keeping deserves. Because in and of ourselves, we could never keep the law fully. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And only when you look into the perfect law and see the only one who perfectly kept the law, only when you look into the word of God and see the only one who, who really, truly did the word of God and obeyed in all ways, and then the will, of the word, will the word of God not be an everlasting despair for our lives. Because now you see in Jesus Christ that there's no condemnation for you. I didn't say this before, I, I, but if you look into church history, these verses that I've, we've looked at are, were monumental for the Protestant Reformation. These were verses that rocked Martin Luther, really caused and stimulated the Reformation to go. And he would once look at the righteousness of God and, and he believed that he needed to earn it. But he knew he could never attain it, he knew himself. But once he looked into the law, and it's not, not just himself, but the only one who ever fulfilled the law, he knew he was free because of what Christ has done. And he says this, oh no, I want to keep the law to delight the one who did this for me, to resemble the one who did this for me, to please the one who did this for me, to know the one who did this for me. His desire after following Christ is to obey the word. And so his motivation for, for keeping the word changed and therefore, the effectiveness of him keeping the word changed. He began to feel the word of God as being a tonic to his soul, a, a lamp to his path, a light to his feet. And he was no longer uh, 
an everlasting despair as he once was before. He was no longer in terror. He was no longer uh, a burden. It was life itself that brought him freedom because of Christ. And because of him and what he'd done for him, he, he could live. So I say all that because as we partake this meal together as Christians, as a church family, we remember what Christ has done for us on the cross. That's part of the, the Lord's Supper. We don't take the Lord's Supper to earn anything. We take this meal to remember what Christ has done, and he's done everything to satisfy the law, to fulfill the law, so that we could receive the righteousness of God. And so friends, if you're here and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, we ask that you do not partake in this meal. We encourage you just to observe, to, to, to watch as we partake and to find us afterwards. We'd love to talk to you. But in a moment, our ushers are going to, to come up and, and hand out the communion elements this morning. And I want us to all wait. I'll have the bread and the juice in the same cup. So we'll all wait till everyone has it and we'll partake together. But would you join me in prayer? Men, you can come forward. Father, we thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. His body and blood shed for us on the cross redeems us from our sins and places us in the family of God. And so may we remember you as we eat together as a church family this morning. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.